Father, may you be glorified this morning by the sacrifice that I bring. May you be glorified in our hearts. May we draw closer to you as we consider this question about having engaging conversations. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So John tells us uh, in the first book of Revelation, first chapter of Revelation, there's only one book, in case I shocked anyone, uh, first chapter, uh, about his encounter with the post-resurrected Jesus. And this is what John says. I turned around me to see who was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and standing among them was one like the Son of Man. And he was dressed in a robe that went down to his feet, and he had a golden sash across his chest. And his hair was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes blazed like fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if dead. And he reached out and touched me with his right hand and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The living one. I was dead, but look, now I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Now a little bit later, John tells us, about his encounter with the throne of God. This is in chapter 4. And he says, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven. And the one sitting on it had the appearance of jasper and ruby. And there was a rainbow that encircled the throne, shone like an emerald. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders who were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne in the center came lightning and rumbles and, and peals of thunder. And around the throne in the center were four living creatures. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when the four living creatures give thanks and glory and honor to the one who sits on the throne and the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power forever and ever. For you have made all things, and by your will they were made and have their being. Shortly after this, John encounters the lamb that was slain. And in chapter 5, he tells us, I turned and heard the voice of many angels, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne and the four living creatures and the elders. And they were saying in a loud voice, you are worthy. The lamb is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard all the creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in, in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and power forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped. God is in heaven and you are on earth. How well do you know this God? Not the God of our imagination, this God. How well do you know him? Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2 encourages a certain response to this God. Go near to listen. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. So let your words be few. Silence can be uncomfortable. And yet silence before God is biblical. Now, it may not be part of your tradition. I think it's one of those lost forms of worship that we must recover. And it's a practice. It takes practice to do this. And to make it more difficult, as if it weren't difficult enough to be silent, uh, in the context of this passage, uh, it includes our internal thoughts. So it means giving God our full attention and not being distracted. And our brains like to distract us. There's that thing at work and that thing that you're planning and the thing at home and, you know, that other thing. And when you try to quiet those down to be silent before God, your brain uh, is kind of rude and it keeps bringing these up, right? So what, what are we to do? Well, um, there, there are techniques that can help us, and they're just techniques. You don't have to do them. Um, but one of the techniques is to focus on something that's simple and rhythmic, kind of consistent. And there's two things I can think of that you carry with you all the time that are that way. One is your pulse, and one is your breath. And uh, so let's experiment, all right? So find your pulse. You can use two fingers on your wrist. Just feel it beating there. Now, we're going to practice with the breath. So if you don't have a pulse this morning, I'm sure you'll have a breath, all right? So don't panic if you can't find your pulse. Uh, so go ahead and close your eyes. And just feel that rhythm, the beating, the consistency. Okay, open your eyes. Now with breathing, uh, just breathe normally. Uh, again, this is, these are just techniques. Use them if they help. Don't use them if they don't help, if they distract you. Uh, so let's try this. Close your eyes. Just concentrate on breathing in and out just normally. Notice the cool air as it hits the back of your throat. The rhythm, the rising and fall of your diaphragm. Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. These can help us. They're not necessary, but they can help us. And what I'd like to do is give you a process for being silent before God. Oop, I went right and it went off. I want to give you a process uh, for um, having silent prayer before God, and I call it active silent prayer before God. And the first thing that I suggest is up here now, uh, recite a scripture of praise and worship. And I suggest reciting it out loud, but that depends on the context. Right? You might choose to do this in some place that um, reciting it out loud doesn't work. That's okay. Again, it's just a guide, a process. And then second would be to focus on your heartbeat or your breath. So go ahead and choose now, if you were to follow this process, because we are going to, um, which would you use, your breath or your heartbeat? Now, I suspect it's easiest to pick one and stick with it because you kind of develop the habit of, of that helps me. The, the key is that 
on number three, when your brain distracts you, not if, because it will, when your brain distracts you, then you just go back to either number two or number one. And it's normal to be distracted. In fact, when you first start practicing this as a form of worship, uh, you might go five seconds without being distracted. That's okay. Just go back to number two and focus on your breath, your heartbeat. No problem. Um, Sometimes you'll be uh, trying this and find yourself parked on number three. You're distracted by something, and now you have no idea how long you've been distracted. And again, that's okay. That's normal. Um, Maybe go back to number one, recite a a passage of worship, and uh, begin again. So let's give this a try. You decide what you want to use, your breath or your heartbeat. And I'm going to recite a verse, a passage of praise and worship, and then we'll go into a time of silent prayer before God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen. Now I want to add a very important step, a sub-step to number two here. Follow the Spirit's leading. So sometimes a verse will come to mind, maybe a song, uh, maybe the need of someone, maybe your own need. Um, The reason we do this, well, one of the reasons we do this is to listen to God. So when the Spirit speaks, respond. So recite a scripture or passage. Choose your breath or your pulse as kind of an anchor. Respond to God during the quiet. So let's try this again. I'm going to recite another passage of worship. Please join me in silent prayer before God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Uh, We're talking about How do we have meaningful conversations with those who think differently than us? Knowing God is not secondary. Knowing God is mandatory. It's the beginning place. And the more we know the God of Scripture, the better we will be at having conversations with those who disagree with us or think differently than us. Okay, the second part, functioning as part of a whole. Back to Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2, the first verse tells us, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now this raises two questions. What was the house of God and what is the house of God? In Exodus 40, we see the tabernacle being used for the first time, being consecrated and used. And in verse 35, we're told, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the house of God. Now, notice the wording here. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And I believe that Paul's um, warning in Acts 17 is appropriate for us even as we look at this passage. Paul wrote, the well, Paul didn't write, Luke wrote, but about what Paul said. The God who made the world and everything in it 
is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God filled the tabernacle. He didn't sell his condo in heaven and move all his belongings into the tabernacle. And besides that, God is not defined by his presence in one location. But the tabernacle was the house of God. Then in 2 Chronicles 5, we, we are privileged to observe moving day when the Israelites took everything that was in the tabernacle and they moved it into the temple that Solomon built. And then we're told in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 14, the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. The same terminology. So this too was the house of God. And that answers our question, what was the house of God? Okay, but what is the house of God? There's no tabernacle. There's no temple in Jerusalem. Is there possibly another house of God? And the answer, of course, is yes. But it's not this building. This building is not the house of God. Acts 2, the first four verses, uh, describe the day of Pentecost and the language about the disciples being filled with the Holy Spirit is reminiscent of the language from Exodus 40 and Second uh, Chronicles 5. And then we're told later by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. Now Ephesians 2 verse 22 puts it this way, in Christ, y'all are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Yes, I said y'all. I'm not prone to Southern speak, even though I was born in Texas. Uh, but English has a problem. And y'all is the best translation of the Greek usage of this. And here's the problem in English. It's a pronoun problem. Um, and that is that our pronoun for the singular second person is you. And our pronoun for the plural second person person is you. So if I say, you will pray, I mean one person. And if I say, you will pray, I mean everybody. It's a little confusing. And our Western mindset, the lens, we'll talk later about the lens that we use, the lens that we use to engage the world, whenever we, as Westerners, hear the word you, we think me, not us. So my encouragement to you is every time you see the word you in the New Testament, replace it with y'all. In fact, I encourage any preacher to use the word y'all, all right? It has nothing to do with me being from Texas. Okay. I, I left when I was three, so I really don't know much about it. We, together, are the house of God. Not me. We, together. Not you. We, together. It's a group thing. And in this group thing... 1 Corinthians 12, 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 27 of that chapter tells us, y'all are the body of Christ, and each one is part of it. You are part of a whole. And this, must mean you, this means you must do your part, but not someone else's part. 
You're part of a whole. Verse 7 tells us that your part is critical. Verse 7 of that same chapter tells us, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 4.10, Each one has received a gift and should use that gift to serve others as beautiful stewards of God's grace in its many colors. You are a beautiful steward of God's grace in its many colors. We have the privilege of delivering God's grace in its various forms, its many colors. So in the tapestry of life, the tapestry that that God is putting together, he weaves each of us in and out, in and out. And in that process, we get to display the color that we are, that gift that we've received. Now green, now blue, now ivory turning to pure white. You, the individual, the singular person, are part of a whole. And you must function as part of a whole. You must deliver God's grace in your color. So that's functioning as part of a whole. Knowing God, functioning as part of a whole. Both of those are foundations to having meaningful conversations with those who think differently than us. So let's talk about seeking our assignments. Now, to talk about seeking our assignments, I want to introduce uh, a framework of three types. You can see those on the left-hand side, calling, roles, and opportunities. We'll talk about each one. And then you can see across the top, longevity, authority, biblical evidence. So longevity is how long does this type last? Authority is who commits to this? Who initiates and commits to this? And then, of course, biblical evidence would be, well, what evidence is there in Scripture for this type? So the first type that I've listed up there is calling. And calling is permanent. It's initiated by God, and it's pervasive in Scripture. But again, we have an English language problem. Um, Well, it's not so much an English language problem. The reality is there are two types of calling. And so let's talk about those, because I'm referring to one type of calling, and many people think about the other type of calling. So these are based on uh, the usage of a certain Greek word in both its noun and verb form, and we can look at uh, what are people called to in Scripture. And so the first type is we are called to be reconciled to God. And the second type is, well, some receive a special calling to do a project within the kingdom. Now, I don't mean this second type of calling. I mean the first type of calling. So let's get the second type of calling out of the way. All right? So the second type of calling is special. In fact, all the evidence in Scripture points to these things. That it is initiated by God, it is specific, it is rare, and it is inescapable. Moses was reluctant. Jonah fled. Paul was an enemy of the cross, and yet God prevailed. If God demands your participation in a kingdom project, he will have your participation. Now, on the other hand, if you're pining away and moaning, looking for your own burning bush, 
You're demanding something of God that you have no right to demand. I don't mean this kind of calling. Rather, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, Romans 1, 6, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9.15. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 1 Peter 5.10. This is your calling in life. You are called to be reconciled to God. And in fact, this type 1 calling is so dominant in the New Testament of what's taught, the theology that's taught in the New Testament, that type 1 calling, you are called to be reconciled to God, should be our default understanding when we talk about calling in the church. It should be the understanding that the world gets from us when they hear us talking about calling. It is that dominant in the New Testament. All right, so that's what I mean by calling in this. It's permanent, it's established by God, and the biblical evidence is pervasive that you are called to be reconciled to God. So let's talk about roles. Now, these are the roles we serve in, and we fulfill various roles in our life, whether it be teacher, construction worker, spouse. Now, these roles are semi-permanent, and they're established within community. Now, Scripture contains some details and description about certain roles, such as elder, husband, child, those types of things. And some, it just doesn't. There's no detailed description. There's no detailed description about how to fulfill the role of being a forklift driver. So there are some general principles that we apply. Now, personal choice is important in roles. It's there. It's available. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul writes, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's a role, and you can desire it. In general, a man must first want to be married, to get married, and it requires the consent of a wife, future wife. My youngest daughter gets married this coming Saturday. So these roles we can seek out, and they're fulfilled within community. And fulfilling our roles is one of the significant ways we walk with God. They're not trivial. I'm a husband, a grandfather, I'm a professor, I'm a church elder. These are some of the roles that I am fulfilling right now. What roles are you filling right now? Our roles are one of the significant ways that we walk with God and serve in His kingdom through our life. The other is seizing opportunities. And opportunities are, are fleeting. They're, they're there and gone. 
We get to make a decision, and they're gone. And really, they're seized individually. I, I can make a choice. And uh, while we have some examples in Scripture, it's really all based on general concepts in Scripture. Uh, some of the examples are, uh, if you remember Tabitha, who was also called Dorcas, uh, she developed the habit of seizing a certain kind of opportunity, and the community loved her. In fact, when she passed away, they, they called for Peter to come see what he could do, and he raised her from the dead because she was so dearly loved, because she had seized the opportunity to meet needs through sowing. Now, let's think about the Good Samaritan. So, we know this story. Uh, we know that a priest went past. He didn't seize the opportunity. We know that a Levite went past. He didn't seize the opportunity. But the Samaritan seized the opportunity and demonstrated Christ's love at that moment in this story. And in fact, Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, just like the priest, just like the Levite, just like the Samaritan, just like Tabitha, you and I have a chance to either seize opportunities or pass them by. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So find those opportunities and seize them. Opportunities are a significant way we walk with God and serve in the kingdom. So my actions in standing in line at the, Christi uh, at the uh, grocery store have eternal consequences for me and the people around me. It's not trivial. Now, I wish God was obvious. I wish he'd just send me a text message and say, okay, when you're in line at the grocery store today, the person right behind you needs to know I exist, and they need to know their need for me, and so therefore I want you to do this. Fortunately, God doesn't listen to me when it comes to running the universe, and that doesn't happen, which leads me to believe that our seeking, our paying attention is critical in this process. So, if you kind of think maybe, sort of, God would want you to be somewhere, say something, do something, do it. Exercise that listening and that obedience muscle, and it will get stronger. Don't wait for the text message. I'm not saying it couldn't come. It could, but don't wait for it. Okay, so... There you go. Roles and opportunities are assignments. I said we were talking about seeking our assignments. So roles and opportunities are our assignments. And we should continually seek and clarify our assignments. But they're not your calling. Now, how do you know if you have a certain assignment? Well, as I've begun here, we could... Duplicate that, right? So know God. That would be the first step. Function as part of a whole. Use wisdom, but that has to be secondary, well, tertiary, third, to the other two, because sometimes God asks us to do things that seem, well, hard, or they don't make sense with our small vision. So yes, use wisdom. Uh, and then the third one I, I've mentioned, and that is the live as if. The, well, I think, maybe, kind of, I think God wants me, okay, then do it. 
Be there. Say that. Participate in it. Exercising your obedience muscle and your awareness of God's prompting will increase. So practice listening and obeying and seeking. What, am I, what are my assignments here this morning sitting here between services, driving home, going to work on Monday? What is it that you would have me to do? And ultimately, our assignments allow each of us to use our gift to serve others as beautiful stewards of God's grace in its various colors. So all of these things are necessary for us to have meaningful conversations. So that is the, uh, the question that was posed in the, the brochure. So let's now talk about having meaningful conversations. And I hope it's pretty obvious that my answer to this question is, well, first, know God. Second, function as part of a community. And third, seek your assignments from God. Now, there's an interesting thing about number two and three here. Function as part of a whole and seeking your assignments uh, from God. Um, it means there are things you shouldn't do. You're not the whole. You're a part. You display one color of God's grace. And I'm not saying we're locked into that. I'm saying that we can't do everything. Meaning that I might be a teacher in this context, and I might share the gospel in another context. That's, that's great. That's the way it should be. But we can't be all things. So there are things that we maybe shouldn't do. So let's talk about an example. Let's say that uh, you're in a cul-de-sac, uh, some, some new people have moved in. You and your wife are Mr. and Mrs. Country. Uh, the people who've moved in are Mr. and Mr. Rock and Roll. Okay? So uh, w whether it's, uh, let's see, uh, serving, okay, comforting, leadership, encouragement, giving, teaching, organizing, all of these gifts deliver God's grace in a certain form. So let's say your gift is serving, right? Don't sweat the meaningful conversation. Walk outside. Help them carry boxes from the U-Haul to the house. That's where you should be sweating. How about if your gift is organizing? Well, put together a block party where your neighbors can meet your new neighbors. And you say, well, our cul-de-sac doesn't do that. So what? You're the organizer. Make it happen. That's, your, that's how you deliver God's grace in this setting. How about if your gift is comforting? Okay, use your listening and empathy skills to understand the journey that these new neighbors are on. You know, moving's hard. It's often precipitated by um, life challenges at jobs or family or something, right? And it's difficult. So Mr. and Mr. Rock and Roll need your comfort. Now, I know, I know. There, perhaps some are saying, okay, this Mr. and Mr. Rock and Roll need to repent. I'm not going to... What? Love them? Demonstrate God's grace in its various colors? Okay, do Mr. and Mr. Rock and Roll need to repent? Yes. So do I. And so do you. It's not an either-or proposition. We are instructed, commanded, 
to deliver God's grace in its various colors, to use our gift to serve other people. Obey that command. And certainly don't neglect the other. Repentance, your own, as well as when it's appropriate, communicating with others. Doing this, delivering God's grace in its various colors, creates opportunities for meaningful conversations. So I mentioned if your gift is serving, you go out and you're, you move boxes. That's, wow, that's what you're good at, and you're sweating when you're doing that. And don't be surprised if the response is one of friendship, and now I have a question for you, and now we're into a meaningful conversation. Versus whatever negative version of this you can imagine, deliver God's grace in the color you are, and that can lead to meaningful conversations. In mid-2010, I was in uh, Krakow, Poland, and I had a warm jacket to give away. Uh, I had the jacket to give away because I had spent uh, much of the summer, three months, in a very warm climate, and I got to Krakow. It was very cold for me, even though it was August in Europe, and so I bought this jacket, but I was headed home to Oregon, and there wasn't room in my suitcase, and it was the last day in Poland, and I thought, I'll go give it away to someone. And so I left the hotel room, and I was praying, Lord, okay, I don't know anyone in Poland, uh, but obviously you do, so lead me. Um, I'm looking for an assignment. And I walked for about 30 minutes praying, and nothing, no one. And I thought, well, okay, I, I guess I tried that. And then I spotted a group of men sitting on a bench um, by a train station, and I went over and I sat down next to this really haggard-looking old man. And I sat there for about 10 minutes, and I was silent, and, and uh, eventually I asked if, can I give you this coat? Now, he didn't speak English, uh, but some of the, the crowd did. By crowd, there was probably six other men there, so I think half of them spoke some English. And they made sure I didn't want any money from him or anything. He doesn't have anything to give you. No, no, I'm just giving away this coat, so I gave it to him. And, and, uh, and then I, I talked with him for probably another 15, 20 minutes, and... Um, then when the police showed up the second time, <laughs> uh, okay, so just before they showed up the second time, I had started talking with uh, a young man by the name of Shamik, and, and uh, his English was, was good enough, and we were having a conversation, and then the police showed up the second time. Well, the first time they showed up, they were very congenial. They laughed about me being there and that type of thing. Well, Shamik got quite serious. The, the, the police seemed angry, and he got quite serious and, and with me, and he said, uh, they don't believe that you can't speak Polish. So, uh, you know, visions of spending time in a Polish jail flashed through your head, uh, and, uh, and he says to me, now might be a good time to leave. <laughs> So, so he and I started walking, okay? And uh, we, we spent quite a bit of the night together. We spent many hours walking and talking. He told me his story. Uh, he showed me where his home was, train station five. He showed me where he got meals once a day. Uh, and he told me about his passion for history. We're walking around, old Krakow, he's pointing things out. Uh, and I'm, my part, I'm listening and I'm helping him pick up old cigarette butts because he takes the, the tobacco out and he takes an old newspaper and he makes a new smoke and smokes while we're going along. And I offered to pray for him and he didn't know what the word pray meant, so uh, talk to God. And so uh, after I prayed, he said, you know, 
I believe in God, but not in church. And then he proceeded to tell me how church people treated him. It was not pretty. And at one point, we were uh, just outside St. Florence Gate in Old Krakow, and I said, okay, promise me you'll wait until I come back. He waited. I went up and got my Bible and a headlamp, and uh, we uh, started reading in the book of John. And uh, helped him with words and uh, answered some of his questions. Why do bad things happen to people? What's going to happen in the end times? I was pretty struggling, right? Now, he did say to me, wow, no one else has ever shown me um, the way to God. And while that sounds great, I was really struggling. It's like, what are the right words? How do I do this? Uh, you know, I, he's, he knows okay English, but not church English, right? So words we use, it, they just weren't, I was struggling. And so I'm praying for the right words, and God answered with a story. I mentioned that Shamak liked history. And he said, I have something to show you. So we go in, and, and this church right here is, is we went into this church, and he said, you know about the trumpeter, right? Yeah, I know, I know the trumpeter goes up there every hour, and all the tourists look up and take pictures. He said, do you know why it's there? No, I don't. He said, well, in 1241, the trumpeter was just a person in the street, and they saw that uh, an army was coming in to take over Krakow, destroy it. And he climbs up in the church tower, and he blows a trumpet. And so the, it was early morning, everybody wakes up, and they defend it. And he said, yeah, but the trumpeter got an arrow through his throat. And then he summarizes the story this way. So he died, but everyone else was saved. So he died, but everyone else was saved. Like, Shamik, that's it. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one in the tr tower for us. Okay, so we walked and we talked, and eventually I left him at a train station. I left him in God's hands, exactly where he had been before I entered the picture, and exactly where the both of us had been for most of the night. We can have meaningful conversations with those who think differently than us, and it's based on knowing God, and it's based on functioning as part of a whole, and it's based on seeking our assignments. And then after all of that, there are some things we can be aware of. We each use a lens to navigate the world, and it's difficult to see our own lens. So this last point is to notice your lens, okay? Now, your lens has these invisible assumptions, things that you just take to be true, but there's no proof for them. And for some of them, there can't be any proof. It's just the way we do it. And then based on these invisible assumptions, you have some reasoned conclusions, things that you believe to be true and you've thought through, and many of those are just based on these invisible assumptions. Now, we use our lens to navigate life, and every lens that everybody in the world has ever had and will ever have includes these categories, classifications. So we put people in groups, okay? Not just people, everything. We put everything in, in groups, right? Uh, here's an example. In much of the non-Western world, you and I are identical, and we are identical to the magazines that, that make it to the U.S. magazines that make it to these grocery stores over there. So every American is rich and spoiled and beautiful, and Christianity is Madonna, not the Catholic 
icon, the singer, because they put, they've categorized, right? Now, on our part, we do the same thing, right? Uh, there are many uh, in America who view all Muslims as sword-wielding, head-chopping, angry, and so on and so forth. We put everything, including people, into groups. And in fact, the second category is pe uh, persons and groups and who are uh, people and, and what groups are they in and, and that type of thing. We kind of define what it means to be rich or poor, powerful, not powerful, healthy, not healthy. All of this is part of our lens. Uh, I was in Iceland uh, recently and was surprised that they don't use any safety rails. And uh, Iceland is rugged. And you go on a bus tour and they take you out to this thing that can, you can fall off. And they're like, that's your problem. If you want to be dumb enough to go to the edge, fall off and die. We're, you know, that's a little different than America, right? So um, Iceland's idea of a person and who they are and their personal responsibility is much different, right? The lens they're looking through. Uh, okay, uh, next one, causality. What causes things? Um, who has power? What's at work in the universe? So let's talk about people power. In some countries, what you own is not yours, it's communal. Your family and neighbors can come in and take what they need. And you, have, you, you don't have the power to say, no, you can't have that. And in fact, that's why in many um, underdeveloped countries, we see homes that are being built kind of in progress, and they look like they've been sitting there for years and years and years. That's because if you have cash laying around, your uncle may need it. But if you take that cash and you buy bricks and you build a wall, your uncle's not going to tear down the wall, right? It's about this lens that we're using. Okay, time. Um, how do we divide time? Are we watching the clock? Or are we watching the sun, right? So when I was in Africa, um, what I experienced is whoever you're with is the most important thing. The next will wait, which means things don't start on time and they don't end on time. But for the most part, people are really engaged in what they're doing. Space, uh, this is the fun one because there are many, many examples of this, right? Uh, how many people should fit in a certain space? But it's not just that. It's how do we organize cities and architectures and set up a room and all of that is, is governed by our lens. But this is fun when you think about people in a space and you travel and, and if you've seen the, the family of five on a, a 50cc motorcycle, right? Um, Jennifer uh, has a picture of a man, uh, two men and a goat on the same size motorcycle. It's quite amazing. It looks like the goat is driving because the goat is in front. Uh, you know, it's, uh, okay, well, my lens wouldn't allow me to do that. Uh, or a bus ride, right? So you have um, the bus seats on each side. So think of two of these seats on one side, and they cram three or four people there. Plus, the aisleway is full, and everybody's leaning on the people who are sitting down, and you may be handed a chicken or a baby to hold, right? And that's, that's your responsibility, right? So space is a, a very interesting one. Um, here's one. I was in the Netherlands and was, was talking with a man, and, and there was something about some place. And, and I said, well, why don't you just drive there? He's like, I can't drive there. That's clear across the country. I'm like, yeah, it's 65 miles wide. I drove 55 miles this morning to get here and didn't even think anything of it. So this idea of space is very different for our lenses. Uh, the last one are the relationships between all of these and how they interact. Okay, in Europe, when you go out to eat, you may eat with strangers, but not like we think of eating. So if you and your wife go out to eat, or you and your husband go out to eat, uh, 
and there's a table for four, they'll set you two here, and then when the next couple come in, they'll set two there. So it's four people at a four-person table, which is really uncomfortable for us Americans, but it's normal in Europe. And you know what? You're not dining with those people. You're not expected to interact with them. You know, there's no obligation there. You're talking to the person that you came with. Right? So how these interact with space and groups and people, right? that's all about the relationships. Now, Jesus had a lens. Uh, it was composed of this first century Hebraic perspective and, and a kingdom of God perspective and a God perspective. And the only one that, that you and I can have is this kingdom of God perspective. But the interesting thing to think about Jesus is um, how many people would Jesus put on a 50cc motorcycle? How many people would Jesus put in an elevator? Is there a Christian answer to that question? Okay. The good news of Jesus Christ is intended to change us at the core of who we are. Now, we know we're made alive by the Spirit, and then many, many things change. But it doesn't change everything about our lens. It doesn't need to. How many people can fit in an elevator is an open question. There's no biblical answer.